Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. No, 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 it's not about happiness, last night, and he said happiness is egg-shaped. Right, um, happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Hello and welcome to the Happiness Is podcast with me, your host Bruce Aitchison from Happiness Is Egg-Shaped. And the excitement continues because today we have hashtag king of pods on this is the most nervous i've been and it's with someone i know but when you are in the presence of greatness this is like playing football in the park and david beckham arrives for a kick around i'm doing a podcast and inviting on this man he's also an unbelievable rugby player who likes to put himself down he's got a mate that he gives a lot of stick to and uh, they've become quite the double act, the podcast answer, Ant and Dick. He's a charitable man. He's a businessman. He is an absolute giant in every sense of the word. The one and the only Mr. Jim Hamilton. Hello, sir. What an intro, Bruce. So you got you got the remit that you, you needed to go big on the start. So thank you for that. Very humbled by your words. But no, it makes class to be on here. Thanks for having me. The King of Podcasts. Is that what I'm known as? I'll take it. That, that's what Sean and I, Sean from Fill Your Boots and I, we were like, we can't believe we've got Jim King of Podcasts coming on. This is huge for us. No, thank you. Th- thanks for that. It's um, Podcast is the, the new thing, isn't it? It's the uh, it's when everyone was wearing Reebok pumps. Everyone wanted to care. <laughs> now look at us. Everyone wants a bit of the podcasted. So... No, Bruce, I love your work, mate. We've done a bit of stuff around the uh, Doddy Wear and Doddy Aid activations. And I thought the way that you interviewed and you did them live streaming things was uh, really good. So when you asked me to come on and we were chatting about it, I was like, I'll only come on if I am 
first on, you went, no, no, we've got Kelly Brown first. So I was like, all right, I'll let Kelly go. And as, as long as I'm in the top three or four first guess, I'm happy. Uh, well, you know, I was nervous to ask because you you must be the one of the most sought-after voices and now the face of everything. How How popular are you now? Humbly, very strange, I find it, because... Um, you know, I was a rugby player, right, for years. And I know there's a, there's a self-deprecation around, you know, the rugby chat that I give. I was a good player, right? But I wasn't an amazing player. I, you know, I, I, I played rugby in a time in which allowed me to kind of just be me in terms of physical, you could fight and all that. Whereas I branched into the media, which weren't meant to be a thing. So I weren't thinking at the end of my career, I tell you what, I'm going to go into the media and be on ITV with Johnny Wilkinson and Clive Woodward. And I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to launch a podcast as well. And maybe that's the authenticity of the podcasting that I've done and managed to find a backdoor way into media because it was never meant to be a thing. And for me, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for that. I feel humbled by that. But it is, I, I also find it really weird. It's like, you know, we're talking about the podcast now it almost feels like I've transcended that kind of transition period of like Jim Hamilton, the rugby player doing a little bit after rugby to actually now I'm known for being a podcaster, which for me being a fan of podcasts and always listen to podcasts, I'd, I'd say it's a dream come true, Bruce, to be honest. And uh, yeah, I go back to that word humbled. I find it really weird, but yeah, apparently it's a thing. And Arguably, I wouldn't be here now. Well, you might not be here if um, I never got into the podcasting space. Hundred uh, percent. And I lo- you are very humble, and you do give yourself a hard time. When you were playing, did you ever? What was the end game plan? What were you going to do after rugby? Oh, it's a million dollar question, isn't it, for everyone? Um, I coached the Saracens Academy for a couple uh, for a couple of years when I was there. You know, I had a couple of business interests, but I wasn't a businessman. I don't, I, you know what I mean? I don't really know. It's um, it's a tough one. You know, like that, you, these lads coming towards the end of their career, it's about what's next. And, and when you're a player, once you start thinking in that space, which you have to do from an early age, you know, I retired at 34, which was a good age to retire. But from the age of 30, you're thinking about what's next. And that ultimately takes away the enjoyment of your last few years. So it's a tough space to be in. I, I, I don't really know. You know, I, I try and think back to what I thought I was going to be. You know, I had an idea of being a physio. Yeah, I'd never, I'd, I never went to university. Really? Yeah, just just weird things like that, that kind of were thrown into the melting pot. So, you know, I, I've been lucky in my transition period, but I've also worked extremely hard to carve out a niche, whether or not that was meant to be. It's kind of neither here nor there now. But um, one thing for sure, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, which is, uh, which is class. Have any players called you up and said, Jim, what do, what do I do? How do I do it? How do I do what you're doing? Like, have you been a mentor to anyone? Um, I, I mean, a, a lot of people I chat to and they'll be like, what's it like on the other side? Um, any tips, any advice? You know, the podcasting stuff, uh, the media stuff. One thing, and I kind of, this only happened a year or two after I retired because I was doing the podcast. So if we talk about that part of it, when I did the podcast and when me and Goody spoke about doing it, I said, I'm only going to do it if I can be myself. Like I don't want to try and be something that I'm not. So when people talk about this retirement stuff or whatever they want to get into, you have to do something that 
you are yourself and you're not trying to be something. Like if I was going to go into be, I don't know, an accountant or, or whatever, I'm shocking at maths. So I'd be, I, it wouldn't make sense for me to do that at all. But one thing I was always good at was telling stories and having a laugh. So, you know, if, I, if anyone says, oh, what should I get into? Well, if you love rugby, right, and you've always loved rugby and everything around the game, then you should get into coaching, whether or not that's a, a club level, uh, academy level or a school's level. Like, that's what you should do. And my best mate coach is Leicester. That's what he wanted. You, you know, did he know he wanted to be a coach at Leicester? No, but he knows that he wanted to stay in rugby and his, you know, that that be his day to day and that to be his identity. Where I was a little bit different. You know, I liked rugby, but I didn't love it. If that makes sense. Yeah, and but and you because you were good at it and because you were people like you were needed, you found a bit of purpose in rugby. Is that true? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to to give you a straight answer, um, rugby gave me everything, Bruce. I didn't I didn't play rugby growing up. I played football. Um, I say play football. I, I stood on the football field and was just big. Uh, I grew up in Coventry, which is the, as we know, just north of the Hebrides. For people calling me out for not being Scottish, people are like, oh, so Scottish, Coventry. You know, but I grew up in Coventry. In Coventry, they had a rugby team. Like Coventry rugby team was pretty good. I was a ball boy down there when I was a kid, not because I loved rugby, because there was an opportunity to be a ball boy and get free food at the end of it. But and yeah, I, I grew up in Coventry, which is largely a football place. Didn't play rugby at school really until I was about 15, 16. and um, I fell into the game. And when I got the opportunity to be a, or an opportunity to maybe be a professional rugby player, I took it with both hands. But it wasn't through talent. It wasn't through any of these things. It was kind of right place, right time, right size. But a lot of people have said that, that they found it by accident because it is a stupid game. But very quickly, you must have thought, actually, I, I could. Well, I don't know. Did you ever think you could be a pro? Was that? Never in your in thoughts, a, in a, never in a million years. I mean, if my backstory is kind of out there a little bit, but it's it's quite hard sometimes when I think back to my journey because it was a tough journey, you know, not just to play rugby, but you know, living on a council estate, not having much money, my dad not being there when I was growing up, no real opportunity. My path was to join the army, that was like the path that I was on. And if it wasn't for me failing my medical um, down in Aldershot to join the army, which all my mates did, like, you know, our group of mates, that's what we did. I failed my medical because I was classed as morbidly obese because my height and weight ratio didn't marry up, right? So I was devastated. I was down in Aldershot and that was meant to be my path. And if it wasn't for that medical failing it, I would have done what my other mates did, who one joined the Royal Logistics, uh, one ended up joining the Paras, went to Afghanistan, you know, and they did 15 years in the army. And if it wasn't for me failing that day and having nothing, then I would never have played rugby. And, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable how the stars align sometimes. And like I mentioned then, because I was in Coventry, which, you know, the, the local area for Leicester to pick out players, is I was playing a game for under 18s Warwickshire, one of the worst players in the team, but I was big. Big fight kicks off in the game. I was like, here we go. Like, I, can, I can fight. So we'll start throwing a few punches. 
And you know what the weirdest thing was? The guy that I was fighting with in that game went on to be the best man at my wedding, Brett Deacon, who now coaches Leicester. <laughs> but the scouts from Leicester were there that day and contacted my local rugby club, Barker Butts, and said, we want to bring Jim Hamilton across to Leicester uh, as a trial in the academy. And I, because, again, I didn't know much about rugby. I didn't know the magnitude of that. But Leicester saw something in me, being my size. Uh, Dean Richards was at the helm there. They had Martin Johnson. They had these guys. So they weren't looking for an athlete rugby player. They were looking for a, a kind of rough diamond, if you, if, uh, if you were. I mean, I was this big at 16, 17. And you, talk about, you, you, know, you talk about opportunity. It's, it, is, you know, it is mental. And I, I, this is the first time I've spoken about it in years. My, you know, my kind of pathway to, to play professional rugby Leicester Tigers picked me from a Warwickshire, Leicestershire county game. My job was to work behind the bar at the local rugby club. I had nothing at the time. Nothing. No money. I, I mean, yeah. Why, it, why, why was the point. army what you were going to do? What, what, what was the appeal there? Discipline, belonging, just easy? No, my dad was in the military for 25 years. So he was in the special forces. Um so I grew up in the military, hence why I don't have a Scottish accent, um, hence why I ended up growing up in Coventry. My mum and dad divorced just after the Gulf War in 91, and that's when we went to Coventry off the back of that. So the military for me was, it's in my blood. You know, I, I was moving around as an army brat. <clears throat> Northern Ireland, my sister was born there, lived in Germany. Uh, my granddad was in the military in Hong Kong. Um, so there's a kind of rich history of, of, of that, and it was just an easier transition. Like, I enjoyed the the physical side of uh, life, you know, training and stuff like that. I was always into running and all these kind of, albeit I didn't probably look like a runner, but I was into that kind of thing. So it was a natural transition. My friends, you know, my, my close group of friends, like three or four of them joined the army, two of them joined the Royal Marines. So it was a natural kind of journey that I was on. There wasn't anything else really. So you, you could have ended up anywhere. Hong Kong's quite close to you, isn't it? But uh, granddad been out there and you've been out there a lot. You love that place. Well, my mum's half Chinese. That's the thing. And people take the piss and they're like, yeah, no chance. I was like, I'm telling you now. So I'm just, I'm, I'm very abnormal, Bruce. Do you know what I mean? I'm not your normal stereotypical person. It's like, you know, my dad's Scottish. My mum's half English, half Chinese. And that kind of all mashes together and makes me. But yeah, like, I love going to Hong Kong and uh, not just off the back of it being a great kind of rugby place to go with the sevens. Um, heard a lot of horror stories about that place as well, but <laughs> As a country, like it kind of goes back, you know, my family, my mum grew up there. My mum lived there until she was 25. I, I just, I just love it. I absolutely love it. And Leicester, did you know who those people were? If you weren't really into rugby, did you know who Martin Johnson was and mm. Dean Richards? And No, not really. I, I, I kind of knew of D Dean Richards for whatever reason. I knew roughly who he was. Um, obviously, very quickly, I was, I got to grips with it and... You know, Martin Johnson, Neil Back, Roundtree, Cockrell, um, you know, Austin Healy. You start to realise that you're in the presence of greatness <laughs> um, pretty soon. But yeah, like I didn't go there and it was like, you know, turning up as a, a Man United footballer and you've got Rooney and Beckham and Giggs and Scholes and, and all that. It didn't feel like that at all. And maybe that was a good thing, you know. It was, uh, yeah, it was just all a little bit weird how it kind of came around. Ignorance was bliss. And I've, I've read Cocker's autobiography, which he hates. Uh, and I have asked him to sign it and he's told me to sling my hook. But in yeah. it, he tells a story about you looking after his business. 
Is that in his book, is it? Yeah. <laughs> no way. Which uh, which I believe it didn't go well. Would that be true? Oh, I have no idea. But no, it didn't go well. <clears throat> no, it didn't. So, you know, I can't speak highly enough of Cockers. Um, Cockers was one of the guys. I know it is quite a funny story. Cockers is one of the guys that uh, looked after me. So, like, the, even being at Leicester, it wasn't all plain sailing. You know, I was in trouble with the police on and off. You know, I was fighting at the weekend. There were still a few kind of underlying issues that I kind of um, had attached to my bootlaces when I was at Leicester, not understanding the magnitude of the opportunity. And Dino and Cockers and Graham Roundtree were kind of three guys in that environment that kind of understood me a little bit and took me under their wings. Cockers, maybe a similar kind of backstory from a similar upbringing, similar kind of life. And, uh, yeah, so when I was at Leicester, Cockers was still a player. Um, and he was transitioning from playing to coaching. So he was doing a bit of coaching and mentoring and stuff. So he was my mentor there as well. But when I was at Leicester, he signed for Clement to play and go over there. And he's like, oh, Jim, I've got a really good opportunity for you. I think it'll be good because, you know, you're only earning five grand a year at Leicester. You're working at the building sites still. So it's a bit of extra pocket money for you. I was like, Cockers, tell me more. He said, well, I've got this little micro business that you put 20p's in, you turn the dial and you get some minstrels and skittles come out of the machines. I've got loads dotted around um, the Leicestershire area, some at Loughborough Uni, some in Nottingham, Leicester Uni, local rugby clubs. I was like, what do I need to do? He says, well, basically, I'll give you my card for Costco and I'll start you off with like a couple of hundred quid or whatever it is to buy the minstrels and buy the skittles. All you need to do is take the key take the sweets, go and fill up the machines around the universities and, and around the rugby clubs, take out the 20p's that have been put in the, to the machine, put the 20p's in the little plastic packs, take them to the bank, take the notes and the money's yours, right? He said, you know, you could be looking at five, six, 10 grand a year if it goes really well. Well, what I didn't realize was on the way to pick up the sweets and stuff like that, if you're eating half of them on the way, you're obviously out of stock before you even get there. What I didn't realise was that people got wind that Richard Cockrell, who owns this sweet business, the minstrel machines, was now in France. So they started ripping them off the wall. I was getting to these universities and the machines were missing, right? So I've got the machines are missing. I've eaten all the minstrels on the way there. There's, there's no money there's no money in any of the machines. So he went from having about 150 machines to when he got back, there was about 80. And I think out of the 80 machines, I think 50 or 60 of them were empty because I'd eaten all the sweets. Um, but it taught me about business. And it taught me about, um, I don't know, integrity and honesty of telling the business owner that the thing's gone up shit's creek, as it were. <laughs> I can, I, well, I can't imagine how. Was he angry, or did he just was it? Did he sort of take his own responsibility? Why did I put him in charge? Of it. Oh, he was all right. He was doing all right. He, he was one of the big earners in France. Started on that journey of big contracts. I'm sure he was all right. If he's wrote about it in his book, he must be laughing about it. But you know, Cockers was a really good bloke. Really good uh, bloke to me and the younger lads. Um, you know, if it wasn't for him and Dino and guys like Graham Roundtree. Uh, then arguably I would have been let go by Leicester for being a bit a bit loose. There was a, there was a kind of core of us that were a little bit loose, but you know that kind of manifested itself to the DNA of what Leicester was. It had this big kind of drinking culture, beating each other up at training, but then winning things. You know, like that time I was at Leicester, 
unbelievable. Like we won the Prem, we won Dublin Europe, and I'm part of it as a as a young 18, 19 year old lad. So I've never had that experience, both not just as a playing experience, but a life experience. You know, the business side with cockers, um, the fighting and training, um, being told off by Dino you know, having to have a fight in training to earn my training kit. And next thing I'm on Martin Johnson's team, we're fighting against Ricky Nebbett and Guy Manton Bishop. And it's like, I get the nod across the mall. It's like, you've earned your kit, off you go. And I look back on them days, if it wasn't for Leicester, I would not have had a life. You know, I was in a bit of debt as well with credit cards and stuff like that because I had no idea about finance. My first big contract, which was 15, 20 grand a year, part of the contract was as they helped me pay off my debts and, kind of give me a foundation to, to to get my life in order. So Leicester gave me everything, and I'm quite happy to put that on record. They, they were an amazing club. How, how did they know you were in debt? Did Were you open with them, or were, were you telling people? Because that must have been – it was either brave or it was actually the right thing to do. But in that era, and even now, getting men saying, I need some help, I'm in debt, how, how did that go about yeah, I can't really remember. I'm sure um, my car nearly got repossessed. So I had I, when I first got a, a half decent contract, which which was about ten grand a year, I went out randomly, stupidly bought myself a Ford Focus with the number plate Y two three T R Y. Try Bruce, you would love that number plate. I know you would. You'd absolutely love that. And I remember I, I never scored tries. Yeah, I know, but it's the, the rugby narrative that you like. I know you love your ruggers. But yeah, I remember turning up to train like that. And uh, the coach said to me, like, have you afforded that? I was like, oh, it's only about three, 400 quid a month. And they're like, you're only getting about 700 quid a month, though. How does that work? I remember struggling to make the payments and stuff like that. And that kind of was the, the trigger that, you know, they sat me down and said, like, this is how finance works. This is what you need to do. You need to open a bank account or whatever. So I got it on really high finance because obviously no one's going to give me a car on finance, are they? I've got no history. <clears throat> so, yeah, so Simon Cohen, who was the CEO at the time, he obviously recently got let go last year or whatever it was. You know, or, yeah, as again, the fondness and the affection that I speak about Leicester is more than just the playing field. It's what they did for me as a, as, as a man. So some of those guys must have been gutted when you played for Scotland. Oh, I don't know. I think you look at it, there yeah, they would have been. I'm thinking about it because I was going to say that I, you know, I think Martin Johnson was worried for his position, but I can't remember whether he was still playing for England at the time because it was around 2006 that he would have retired after the World Cup in 2003. Yeah, they weren't very happy about it. I'll speak frankly about it because at Leicester they had obviously a core of English players. So I mentioned like Martin Johnson, they had Ben Kay, uh, they had Leo Cullen, who's now the Leinster coach, who was in the Ireland squad at the time, and Lewis Deacon, who was in the England squad at the time. So I would fill in when these guys were away from international. It worked really nice. I'd come through the academy. There was a core of us that had come through. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, really, I kind of said, I've got an opportunity to go and play for Scotland. And you imagine what they're thinking. Well, they're like, well, no, you've, you know, you're meant to be playing when Lewis Deacon's away with England. That's the whole point. So it was at that point in my career where the baggage that I carried all the way through the, the kind of start of my Leicester journey, being a bit loose, you know, not great with money, um, getting a, a contract then going out the piss and bringing my mates and stuff like that. 
I, it felt like I couldn't break that mold of like Jim being just a bit of a kind of lad, a bit rough around the edges. And in order for me to break that mold and to take the next step, and you know, I was in and out. Look, you know, I was in and out of the England under twenty one squad a couple of years young. If it wasn't for Stuart Hooper, I would have played for England Day. And that's how close it was to not happening. But when the Scotland opportunity came up, it wasn't a case of, oh, Scotland, I'll take it. Like I did, there was parts of me that felt Scottish. I grew up in Inverness. You know, my dad's Scottish from Glasgow. We wore kilts. So there was, there was an authenticity to me choosing Scotland. It wasn't a case of, oh, here's an opportunity. And then that transition just happened so quickly from making the decision in 2006 in the summer, playing on the Barbarians tour against Scotland, to making my test debut against Romania in 2006. I never looked back after that. So I look at my career kind of in three parts. The Leicester part, the 10 years of playing for Scotland, and then my last three years of playing for Saracens. So the stars aligned again with the Scotland thing. And it just it happened very quickly. And uh, it also went very quickly as well. When we had your mate Kelly on, he was saying that at the... I think it must have been the under-19s World Cup then, you completely took apart the Scottish line-out. Just this, he said there was just this absolute giant skinhead who just completely demolished their line-out. Was that, were you determined, was it because it was Scotland or did you just do that to everybody? Well, it's the only thing that I could do. The funny thing around that Scotland game was that Kelly was playing in is one of my best mates was hooker for Scotland called Jim Henry. And who was at Leicester with me. So he was the hooker for Scotland in that day in Chile. It was about 50 degrees. The Scottish lads were struggling in the heat because of my quarter Chinese. I was fine. And that was it, yeah. And um, that was the kind of way when I, I took the international team by storm was in Chile, um, taking the Scotland line out, which is ironic, really, isn't it, when you think about it? So... When, how did the Scottish thing come about? Who makes the call? Does that go to you? Is that through an agent? Do they contact the club? How did you suddenly become an interest of Murrayfield? No, hey, there was no agents back then. <laughs> um, I think there's a guy, I don't want to get his name wrong, but I might get it wrong, Andrew Fletcher, um, who was coaching Scotland under-21s. He had a link to Newcastle. And I was chatting to him in, in the bar after a game for Leicester against Newcastle. And he said, oh, James Hamilton, which was my name in the programmes then. That's a Scottish name. I was like, oh, my dad's Scottish. I was like, oh, really? I was like, yeah. Didn't think anything of it. And then next thing, I had a phone call off Frank Haddon. At which point, I was on the Barbarians tour that summer to play against Scotland. So I spoke to Frank. I said, well, I'm actually up in Scotland next week. Let's have a chat. The Barbarians played against Scotland. We had a great time, but we didn't win. And I was chatting. I knew Kelly. I knew the guy with the big eyebrows and the girl's name. I said, I know that guy. I'm going to chat to him about it. So all of a sudden, we're starting to have these conversations. And, you know, as it were, with Scotland, not that they were thin on the ground in the second row position. You know, they had Al Kellett was coming through. Um, Wagger was playing. Uh, Scott Murray as well. But I think I was a little bit different. The fact that I was at Leicester and I was playing, I was playing quite well as well. Um, I was big and I could probably do stuff that wasn't in the DNA of Scottish second rows in terms of being quite big and quite physical and could scrummage. So I remember it happened quite quickly. Frank spoke to me, Kelly spoke to me. And next thing I know, I'm in the Scotland camp. Al Kellock won't even look at me. Scott Murray won't talk to me. 
and next thing I'm on the bench against Romania, everyone praying that I don't become the historic 1,000th man to represent Scotland. <laughs> and as it were, Jason White goes down with a knee injury. David Callum goes on as cap 999, and I'm just waiting. I'm like, they've got a choice here, because if they don't cap me, I could be playing for England next week. So um, I'm only joking. I got capped, yeah. Thousand player came on against Romania. I love that. I love that. And whenever I see you at Murrayfield, that tends to come up in conversation with somebody. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know what? It's uh, what a number, eh? I know it's only a number, being the thousandth man to play for Scotland, but it's a hell of a number to be. I mean, even to play for Scotland is unbelievable in itself. But, you know, to have that kind of special number 1,000 made it even more special, really. Uh, it's, it's so cool. Hello, my name is Bruce Aitchison from Happiness is Egg-Shaped. You wait for a podcast and then two come along at once. I am looking forward to introducing to you Murrayfield and Me, a love story by Bruce Aitchison. I have spent so many happy days in Murrayfield Stadium. I could watch the grass grow. It is a place where I have so many memories. Happy, sad, because let's face it, I'm a Scottish rugby fan but memories all the same. I've met good people, I've built strong relationships, and I would go back tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. It is an amazing place to watch rugby, and everybody knows happiness is egg-shaped at Murrayfield. So join me on the podcast, Murrayfield and Me, a love story by Bruce Aitchison. Barbarians, it, was it at the moment? It seems like the Barbarians has never been more popular with players because it's as close to the amateur ideal as they're going to be allowed to under current contracts. Was it the same then? Because it, it was going through a bit of maybe lack of identity. Was it still a lot of fun? Yeah, it went through a bit of lack of identity. Probably the second tour that I played on the Barbarians when we got hammered against the Lions in Hong Kong, which we thought was going to get canned because of the heat, but it didn't. And everyone took the Sky Gamble the night before, which was probably an unprofessional thing to do. But on that first tour that I went on <laughs> was to Scotland and, um, Scotland and Georgia. Um, and the romance was still there. We had Bobby Skinstad as the tour captain. We had some old school Welsh players, Will Greenwood in the centre, Leon Lloyd. And it was still that touring mentality. And, and Mickey Steele Bodger, who had a great, relationship um you know rest in peace uh, mickey what an absolute gent of a bloke and for me the barbarians and jim hamilton were hand in hand right yeah, absolutely. Of, who back, of who i was back then and i was initially meant to be the non-cap player of that tour that's what it was it was you have a, a team of internationals and you have a non-cap player but that tour kind of changed the narrative really because they realized the game was becoming uber professional you couldn't have guys that were um were, were capped coming into the barber, Barbarians, going out the piss all week and then playing playing at the weekend and going back into a test environment. So they, they there was a few players that were not capped on that uh, initial tour that I had to Scotland and Georgia. <clears throat> but then what they started to see was how sustainable was it for the Barbarians team to go out midweek, go out on a Thursday night and rock up together and play a test match at the weekend effectively. And as we saw in the Barbarians um Lions game in Hong Kong in 2017 and we played England the week before it's not that sustainable so that was a turning point for the Barbarians after that tour because there was a lot of question marks about this tour inside whether or not in the professional era they still had a place 
smartly what they did after that in 2018 is instead of having English, Scottish, Irish or Welsh players, they just filled it with a load of Kiwis. And they know that Kiwis can play rugby whether they're blind drunk or whether they're stone cold sober. So that's the route that they've gone down is, I tell you what, if we're going to have a Barbos tour, it's going to be loose. Let's put South African players in there and let's put a load of Kiwis. And at least that way, and Fijians and Samoans and Tongans and keep the English lads out there, the Scottish lads out of there because if they're half cut, they're going to struggle to win anyway. And uh, so... I'm glad there's still a place for it because the Barbars for me is there's a you know there's a romance around the Six Nations, there's a romance around the Lions and World Cups, and there's still this romance about the Barbars. And again, I can't actually believe that I'm a two-time tourist of the Barbarians, but it's uh, certainly one of my pr- proudest moments and achievements. Are you are you more of a rugby fan now than you were when you were 16? Oh, yeah. I didn't realise I was a rugby fan until I retired. Um, like I like rugby, yeah. I like, but I love football because that's what I grew up watching. That was like, you know, I lived by Coventry City Stadium, uh, the football stadium, Highfield Road, growing up. So that was kind of in me to do that. I don't come from a rugby family. Like my dad, I don't really know my dad really, but he he didn't play rugby. My granddad didn't play rugby. My my sisters didn't play rugby. My brother. So there's there's, there's no there was no rugby influence on me at all. You know, never been to a rugby game. But now I understand what rugby does. And, you know, rugby's in a tough place at the minute. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's got a bad bit of bad press. Um, you know, and I'll stick up for rugby for the rest of my life for what it's given me, not just from an achievement point of view and finance and all the things that comes with that, but for what it's given me as a bloke and a human being and the foundation and the values and all these things. And as I limped out of my career at Saracens at 34, arguably probably went on, you know, I should, if I was, you know, if I was an animal, I genuinely would have been put down, I think. So back into my career. And there was a bit of resentment that I kind of carried on in the pain and how uncomfortable I was and the transition period. And my first work job in the media was to go on the Lions tour to New Zealand. And initially I was like, I can't be arsed, like, you know, I couldn't be bothered. I, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, our oh, New Zealand played down there as a kid. Lovely place. Lions tour. Fans everywhere. Talking about rugby. Can't be asked. The minute I got off the plane, you could feel the energy. And this is the whole talk around the Lions and, and, and how special it is. I realised a week into that tour, whilst working, just how special rugby is. And actually, how privileged I was to have played the game. Not that I didn't feel privileged when I was playing the game. But you don't think about them things when you're playing, apart from when you're doing the anthem and, you know, when you have these amazing moments of winning trophies, which is rare. You're like, it's a rare thing to do them things. But when I was on the Lions tour and I realised what rugby gave people from all walks of life, from all corners of the globes, that's when I realised, actually, I love this game. So when you hear people like Ellis Genge or Kyle Sinclair or Ben O'Bano talking about kids coming from certain backgrounds you you came from that background but because you were the size you were you literally stuck out and that was valuable how what can happen for that to happen more often Uh, it's a tough question not just because opportunity 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And background and showcasing to the right people. Is there an underlying narrative around what school you go to to be given opportunity? Rugby is a tough sport anyway because of the injuries naturally that come with it. It's a tough game to consume. Arguably, it's tough sometimes to convince parents that their kids should play rugby instead of hockey, you know, or tennis or swimming or athletics or cricket because it's a physical sport, especially now. So a lot of parents would say to me, oh, I want my lad to play rugby. How is he going to make it to the top? I think it's managing the expectation that it's going to be really difficult for them to make it to the top because what is the top? So is the top a Jim Hamilton who has an international career, you know, was in and out of winning squads and has now forged a career after rugby to be able to talk about that career? Is a successful career a Maru Otoji, a Stuart Hogg, where you're superstars? Because the real, you know, the reality of it you can have a rugby career playing in the second division in France or playing in the championship where you're earning 20 grand a year, you're on minimum wage and you're playing one of the toughest sports in the world. So there's that part to it of trying to manage people's expectations of what making it in rugby really means. And there's a lot of work to do around that, I think, for the governing bodies to make sure that there is an easier pathway. You're well remunerated in them pathways and you're looked after regardless of whatever level so there's that discussion and then there's also the class discussion isn't there so if you go to a Merkiston or if you go to a a state school that doesn't really play rugby are the same opportunities there for you well they're not no like that's kind of obvious and when you hear Ellis Genge and you hear about his story and Ben Urbano who's got a documentary out on Amazon and they talk about opportunity and Benno talks about underprivileged kids, black kids coming from the urban communities in and around London, will they get the same opportunities? Well, I don't think it's just in rugby. I think it's generally in all sports and all walks of life. And I think we're all, you know, me included, I'm passionate about bridging the gap, you know, for kids from these backgrounds, because I am from that background. I lived on a council estate. We had no money. My dad wasn't there when we were growing up. But I had the opportunity through design or default, stars aligning, and you make your own look sometimes. So it's a really difficult question to answer because I don't know the answer to that. I think the fact that we're talking about Genji and we're talking about Beno Urbano and we're talking about these players who come from a slightly different background shows that arguably there is a change in narrative. 
Uh, in Scotland, it is very different because if you're good at rugby, you'll be at a good rugby school because you'll get picked up. The rugby clubs around Edinburgh, for example, which is a good hub of rugby players, you know, the schools over in Glasgow. And I don't know what the makeup is. You know, are we talking like Glasgow is edgy? It's rough. You know, there's rough parts to that. Are we picking up lads from these areas, you know, and we could talk about girls, but I'm talking about the boys at the minute from these parts, you know, on council estates that are probably a bit rough around the edges like myself, a bit harder. Are they getting the opportunities? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that they should be getting them, giving them opportunities, whether that is through government funding. I know, look, we're in a weird time at the minute, so I don't imagine going to the government and saying, look, I've got this idea about how we can get underprivileged kids into rugby and we can really generate some hysteria around there. But I think in order for the game to evolve and the game to grow, then these are definitely discussions that need to be had. Would you still play if you hadn't been a pro? I don't know. I don't know because I, it's, it's, hard, it's hard, another hard question to answer because I, I'll never play rugby again now. Like I tried, I went to Curry Rugby Club and had a run around and it was more because of the body. I don't know. I like rugby as a, as a game. I liked it, but I, I mean, joking aside, I wasn't the most naturally gifted. I had four shoulder reconstructions before I was 24, so I couldn't tackle properly. I could barely pass the ball. I was slower than a week in the jail. And I didn't have an ounce of power. So I might have been all right at grassroots rugby club. But I think what I know now and the life that I had before rugby, knowing what that that could have given me, having been in a rugby environment in terms of mates, purpose, banter, love, you know, playing games at the weekend, winning, losing, travel. Um, yes, I would. I think in answer to your question, if I didn't make it as a rugby player professionally, I know what I know now, 100%, I would have veered towards a rugby club. I, I kind of liken you a bit. And let me finish this. I kind of liken you a little bit to Gary Lineker. There's a, there's a generation of people who had no idea Gary Lineker was a rugby player. They just think he's a presenter and he's on match of the day. And I, what do you think about people who just know Jim Hamilton standing holding a microphone or listening to him as a podcast are you do you want them to also reflect and know that actually i won quite a lot of stuff i've got a lot of caps i was the thousandth capped player for scotland or are you happy to be jim hamilton media podcaster more than happy if that's the case <clears throat> um i'm obviously extremely proud of what i've achieved and you know there's a underlying self-deprecation part to what I do. And I think that that was important for me to go down that route because of the way that I played and the perception that I had, you know, physical player, arguably a dirty player, whether or not I wanted to be or, you know, the self-proclaimed enforcer. I took a role in a team which worked and got me paid, the vulgarities of it. Um, there was obviously more to it than that. That's a very superficial line. The big thing after when you retire in this transition period that everyone talks about is purpose, identity so these are the big things purpose identity and finance are the big transition issues that players will encounter when they finish so i, I keep saying luckily i've worked extremely hard in the in the in, in the podcasting in the presenting in the media stuff because i had no training whatsoever in that i found a backdoor way in by doing a podcast and 
telling stories, which I was always quite good at. You know, I enjoyed the barroom banter and, and laughter, and, and that's where I really came into my own. And I managed to find a platform to do that. So when you retire from rugby, that's what we're looking for. We're looking to be what we are next. So Shane Williams, for me, it's really difficult when I look at Shane Williams to differentiate him from being the Wales wizard on the wing and scoring loads of tries because I've got so many memories of him scoring tries. But he does triathlons and stuff now. He, you know, this, he, he's, a, like, he's doing all these mad things. But with Shane Williams, I'm always going to remember him as an unbelievable rugby player. With me, because I was a good rugby player, not everyone will remember me because I said I wasn't in that top brackets of your Mauro Togis, you know, you might Martin Johnson, Johnny Wilkinson, Richie McCord, Dan Carter. But now I have my own new identity, which is working in the media, which is doing content, which is doing uh, podcasts. And for that, I'm very, very happy about. I'm quite happy sometimes to lean on what I used to be. But if you speak to a lot of lads, they really struggle with who they used to be because they're no longer that person. So uh, I'm very happy if people look at me as Jim the podcaster, you know, Jim who works in the media. That means I've done something right and, and something well in this new life that I found myself in. Oh, you've absolutely done it right. And you, because you're humble and because you have a pop at yourself, people love it. Uh, I think the you've obviously got an ego. We've all got an ego, but your ego doesn't stick out for people to have a pop at you give yourself as much stick as anybody gives you stick I think the the thing players and I miss and pretty much anybody of any level misses is not necessarily what happened between the whistles and there's if I asked you to tell me results you would probably be able to remember half a dozen final scores the bit everybody misses is the changing room or the stuff that happened off the field and you've still got a lot of mates. Kelly Brown was telling Jim Hamilton stories. Um, and you've spoken about your best mate coaching at Leicester. What happens when you walk away? Is it is it difficult to keep in touch with people? Is it difficult to get that buzz again from that aspect of playing? Hardest part, I'd say. I'd say that, you know, if you ask me what I miss, there's a couple of things that I miss. I miss... The, it's a weird one because the... the and I only realised this when I went back to Murrayfield to watch a game. It might have been last year or the year before live. The energy you feel as, a, as, a, as, a, as an athlete or as a rugby player, for me, and this is arguably why I, my discipline was really poor as a player, because I engage so much in the emotion of the anthems, the tunnel. And I was at my very best where I felt invincible, like I was like just I was having an out-of-body experience, which was... Playing for Scotland a lot of the time is what I felt. And therefore, that was probably through the detriment of some of my performances because I wasn't thinking clearly, which I learned to at the end of my career. But that's what I miss most, that feeling of walking out, of feeling alive. You can't it's, – it's a really hard thing to explain. So that's the number one thing that I miss selfishly and deep-rootedly and knowing that I'll never get that back. The other thing is – the people and the relationships and the laughter and the kind of untangible bonds that you have with your fellow teammates, whether or not that is because you've taken to the field with them and then you're having a beer and you've got that kind of natural connection, whether or not it's a, an alpha thing around men, testosterone fueled, same age, same kind of experiences that you're having, that it kind of all fits in the room together. You know, that kind of, 
irritable stuff that you can have with people that you don't really, you know, a bit of drama with, oh, you know, don't, you're having a moan about him, he's having a moan about you, you know, you're moaning about this, all these kind of things that you throw into the mountain pot. That's the, the number one thing that I miss because being in a team and being around your mates and being around your lads, and that's what I've struggled with the most because I've gone into this new world and from the outside looking in, it's going really well and it is going really well, but it's very different. It's very lonely. You know, you think of my Monday to Friday, which leads up to doing a podcast on a Monday on my own, especially now. And obviously everyone's on their own now, but, it, you know, in, in, a, in a studio, in a garage on my own, the weekend commentating on a game on your own, albeit you're in a, you're in a, a two or a three from being in a position that I love more than anything, which was being around people and being around mates. And that's the number one thing. And, you know, anything you, you listen or watch about rugby, any documentary, and you mentioned it at the beginning, I couldn't tell you the scoreline. I couldn't tell you about some of the performances. You can obviously remember one-off big performances. You probably wouldn't get it right in your mind. But what you do remember and who you remember is the people. And I, it was weird, a really weird situation that you mentioned this now. <clears throat> so I was in the bath and... I, I was. I had a not a life moment, but I was just kind of reflecting on this kind of last year, my career, what, what direction I, I'm going in now, my career as a player. That is, and my wife said, "Oh, you look deep in thought." She probably said, "Oh, yeah." Just we got talking. So I'm in the bath. She's outside, and I said, "You know what? When anyone and this is, I swear, this happened two weeks uh, last week." I said, "When it's all said and done, when I think back about everything that's happened, if if I said to Beck, if you were to ask me." about my career, what you remember the most, who you remember the most, it would be names. And I was rolling off Harry Ellis at Leicester, Luke Abraham, Brett Deacon, and then I was reeling off Chunk, uh, Scott McLeod, do you know what I mean? Kelly Brown, um, Ewan Murray, um, Fordy, Ernst Schubert, Neil DeCock, um, Jacques Berger, Petra Supersi. So my memory and my relationship with rugby goes back to the people every time. So when I think about rugby, I won't think about the broken leg or I won't think about the stitches. I'll smile and I'll remember the time and the relationships that I had with people. And I suppose, you know, this is the thing when we speak about rugby, when, you know, you chat to your kids and you want people to be, you know, at the very top. And you look at Owen Farrell, for example, the way that he goes about you know, his business or being an elitist. You watch the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, and I start questioning myself about how I was. You know, did I get the very best out of myself? Did I do everything I could as a professional? No, because I enjoyed the other things arguably more than I enjoyed sitting, analysing a game for two hours more than I did. I do, I, do, I do an hour of analysis, but I probably should have done three. I valued that two hours sat with the lads over a coffee, having a moan, having a chat and laughing and smiling more than I valued that. And I think that's me personally. When it's all said and done, what will I remember? I'll remember the people. And yes, I'll remember the experiences. I'll remember running out, you know, in a World Cup quarterfinal. I'll remember my 20 seconds against... Um, Racing Metro at Murrayfield winning the final, of course, you know, and that emotion that you have after. But what I remember most is the people. And for me, that that's the most important the thing that's, that's deep-rooted inside. I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, you said I could have spent three hours instead of one. 
but do you not think there's a bit of it that the best thing for Jim Hamilton was to have a cup of coffee with his mates rather than pour over something? Your priority and your your drive was coming from being with that band of brothers rather than kind of find a little margin in my tackle technique or how I am over the breakdown. Do you not think that maybe you did in the way you approached it? 100%, yeah. Yeah, and it's weird is that you talk about <clears throat> learnings and getting the best out of players and being your very best. It doesn't necessarily mean doing extra training, doing your recovery, making sure your nutrition's right. And yes, all them things matter, but arguably when I played, we weren't being blood tested to see what our vitamin levels were like and what our VO2 max was doing day to day. You know, we weren't getting muscle scan to see, you know, what efficiency they were working. I know I'm talking quite ridiculous here. So really, how much better could my nutrition have been? You know, how much sitting in front of a laptop after training for two extra hours was good for me? So yeah, arguably, yeah, I was better for that. I, it was weird because there was a, a couple of reasons why I made it to the highest level, right? And this is a really weird one, what, what I'm about to say. <clears throat> Excuse me. So one was the natural size of me. So not many people were built on a six foot nine carcass. You know what I mean? And that could, and that could, and that could run. Like, you know, I, I was one of the fittest in, in, in the team, believe it or not. So that was my kind of point of difference, that I was one of the fittest players, whether it be on a watt bike or running, Albeit not fast, I was one of the fittest players in the team. So that was a point of difference for mine. But the other point of difference was, is, and I find this now, and this has probably helped me with my commentary, is I could read the game. I just, and, and my wife played netball for, for England uh, when she was younger, and she was an athlete through the javelin, uh, Great Britain. And we were talking about these things where something like that, you either have it or you don't. And that part of the game, I could, I could read the game. Like, I just... So I didn't need to go through the call sheets and, 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 and go through line outs and do what Paul O'Connell did in line out. Yeah, I could go into a game, humbly take Paul O'Connell to the cleaners. Um, do you know what I mean? So there was a part of that as well. So there's an argument that you can do too much. And it's up for the coaches, I suppose, and you, and it's hard when you're coming through, but to understand that what works for one person won't necessarily work for another person, especially in a sport like rugby where there's so many variables not just in terms of learning, but in terms of your body, um, in terms of you know the tactics around the game, instincts and all these things that go with it. You, you were in heaps of different changing rooms, whether the international clubs, barbarians. And were you the same Jim Hamilton in every changing room? Did you fulfill the same role in every changing room? Yeah, I couldn't be anyone else, really. Um, when I was captain at Gloucester... It was a more, you know, I didn't find it difficult because I was a natural leader on match day. It's really weird because I was a joker in the week. And this is where Vern Cotter struggled with me. So in the week, outside of rugby, I like a laugh. I don't take myself too seriously. I enjoy comedy. I enjoy telling jokes. I enjoy receiving jokes. I enjoyed John Barkley bending over and farting in a, in a changing room. You know, they're things that who I am, my DNA, my makeup. But the minute I stepped over the white line on the pitch, I was I, not even the, the minute I hit the changing room for a match. It's different. No joking. You know, you're talking polar opposite ends of the scale, aren't you? Really? 
Because you look at Finn Russell, he's going around smiling. He's like that all the time. He's like that in the week. He's like that on the pitch. And where I was captain at Gloucester, they knew that I was like that on the pitch. That's why they made me captain. But it's the lead up in the week, isn't it? So if I'm pissing about in the week and having a crack in the week and trying to deliver messages to the team, and I found that bit quite difficult because if we lost at the weekend, I'd have to get up there on a Monday and Tuesday and present to the team and speak to them. I could see Johnny May giggling at the front because I used to call him the chicken. Do you know what I mean? And we're doing plucking noises. Like he's plucking in the change room. Buck, buck, buck. I'm bucking out. And like, buck, buck, buck. So we're talking in the change room like that. And next thing I'm captain in front of him on a Tuesday, trying to explain to him, look, mate, it's not good enough. Your kick chase wasn't there. Like you've got to be better in defence. So how can he take me seriously? So that's where Vern Cotter struggled. Because I think he wanted to see this Jamie Cudmore enforcer on the pitch and off the pitch. And he didn't understand how, I'm not speaking for him, but I think that he couldn't see how I could be this bloke off the pitch, like in loving life, seem like I'm, I'm not really that bothered, albeit I am. But then on the pitch at the weekend, being as physical and stupid in some moments, like giving away penalties and stuff like that, I just don't think he could quite get that in his head. So I was always, I was the same person throughout. Like who, who I am is who I am. You know, it's not Katie Price here. You know, I am what I am. Like you take me at face value. Like that's, you know, I can't be anything other than me. It's just not, I, I, I can't fake trying to be, you know, a Martin Johnson or a Richie McCall or something like that. It's, um, yeah, I suppose true to who I am. Were, were the club decisions just the best idea at the time? So I was at Gloucester at the right time. That was the right place to be. I was at Edinburgh. I was, and did Saris come at the right time? Oh, they came at the right time. And not with all the houses that everyone speaks about. <laughs> no, I, I was at Montpellier. I signed for Montpellier from Gloucester and as I was Gloucester captain. So it was a big emotional move anyway because I love being captain. But I signed for Montpellier for the money, right? Now, in today's market, it, it's not money. Um, you know, what you're hearing, some of the lads are getting paid. But for me, from my backstory, and because I probably fully didn't back myself as well in terms of realising how good I was and how good a career I could then go on to have. So when a big offer coming from Montpellier, I was like, I've got to take it. You know, I've got to take it. Like this, this opportunity might never come again. But when I got there to Montpellier, I realised I sold myself short. I was in the prime of my career, 27, 28. I just walked away from being captain of one of the oldest, richest club in history, Gloucester. Um, I'm playing international rugby. <clears throat> so when Saracens come knocking, and that was off the back of Steve Borthwick, wanted me to go. So when Steve Borthwick was retiring, he put my name forward, having played against me, for Gloucester to say, this is the next guy that could take over me going forward. So when Saracens came knocking, I was like, I, I, this is a selfish opportunity for me to try and win something because the front end of my career, I played in a, uh, a premiership final, scored a try against Sam in 2006. We lost. I was never involved in them winning games, albeit I played in a quarterfinal and we ended up winning the league at Leicester when I was a kid. I thought this is the one, and nine years of playing for Scotland and not winning anything really. I was like, this is an opportunity for me now to win something and see what that winning something feels like. And for all the kind of pain and this, I don't want to say sacrifice, but what I've kind of put into my career, if I can win something, it'll be the cherry on the cake. And by going to Saracens, it was more than a cherry on the cake because not only did we win the Premiership back-to-back -back in Europe, back-to-back, -back, and I know there's been a bit of fall-off off the back of that, 
the way they were as a club, they managed to give me the foundation, the platform and the backing to go and be me. Be the character that you are. Interview some of the players at the club. You know, we've got really high-profile players. And for me, that Saracens move was the best thing that I ever did. Not just to win stuff, but because of what it allowed me to do to boost my profile. Again, the stars aligned through default or design. I'm doing a podcast whilst playing a European semi-cup final. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So I'm talking about the way I'm talking on a podcast, but I'm talking about experience. I'm playing arguably the highest-profile team in Europe. And is that... Why why are other t- clubs not like that? Why why do clubs not see that it's important if you've got somebody like that? Like there's Danny Cipriani has signed for another club. He is an unbelievable talent, but there's not really been anyone who appears to have got everything they could out of Danny Cipriani because they don't seem to get Danny Cipriani as an individual. Oh, they have. Johan Ackerman did. Okay. So the fact that he's left, I think, was Danny's issue. I think that Johan leaving, whether or not Danny knew that or not, and there was you know talks of Danny chatting to the board or being involved in them conversations and speaking to someone this week about Danny Cipriani, Andy Powell was chatting about his experiences with Danny Cipriani at sale. He said the reason... Danny got the best out of himself was because Steve Diamond could manage him. Because Johan Ackerman was the same with Danny Cipriani. And Andy Powell said the same about Gatland. He said, but I played so well because Gatland understood me or at least tried to understand me. And that's how, you know, and, that, and that's the important thing, isn't it? That's not all players are the same. You know, the whole thing around Finn Russell and Gregor Townsend. Finn's Finn. You might want to, you don't, you, you don't want to take away the romance and the glitz and the the glamour that's around Finn. And Greg obviously tried to do that. And I, I don't know the full story, but I think there's an understanding now that you do, you know, you, you do get weird and wonderful characters. Jeff Cross played for Scotland with one of the weirdest blokes ever. I loved him though. Absolutely. Loved, he, used to, he used to kill people. Like people like Jeff, do you know what I mean? But you're laughing. So you've obviously had experiences with him or seen him. Yeah, I know had, Jeff. <laughs> who would have thought that Jeff would have gone on to get that many caps? That is because they found a way to get the very best out of him. And is that not, when it's all said and done, the most important role of a coach or a teacher or a parent is to get the very best out of that individual who probably isn't the same as you or the same as him, the same as her? Yeah, right. We we cannot leave without talking about a prop that I think got the most out of himself and he's a big mate of yours. What's what's it like being on tour or in the changing room or on the pitch with Chunk Jacobson? Salt of the earth. Let's just start by saying that. So the mo- one of the most genuine guys you'll ever meet. And you look at you talk about people's rise to the top, Alice Genge, Ben Urbano, we're talking about obviously earlier. Look at Chunk. From the pans, I don't think he went to Fetis. He might have done, but I don't think he did. Um, or Merkiston, but you know, one of the best loose head props we've ever done it. And I'll leave on this story. So <laughs> we were in New Zealand in 2011 for the World Cup. Absolutely amazing. You might have heard this story before. It's one we've of my favourites, though. <laughs> yeah, we've had two two games that you think we're going to walk to lead us into the big games against England, Argentina and then England. So we've got Romania and Georgia. We scraped through them games in Invercargill. 
to play against Argentina where we got absolutely robbed by, I think it was Wayne Barnes. Uh, Contepomi was about three miles offside when Parksy does the drop goal in front of the sticks. Should have been a penalty. We would have beaten Argentina to then go to play England to see who we would have played in the semi, but we both would have qualified. We don't. We lose to Argentina. We get to England. We go up to Auckland. There's loads of drama around Mike Tyndall throwing dwarfs around and, and doing whatever. So there's all this narrative going on whilst we're building up on a six-day turnaround from Argentina to play against England. I'm rooming with Chunk, right? Yeah. I'm injured, so I've injured my knee. So I can't play at the weekend. So big Al Kellogg, who was, who was captain of the World Cup squad, got the nod. Arguably, I might not have been playing, but let's just say I would have been. So I'm not playing, but I'm in a room with Chunk. So because we're good mates. Chunk's playing at the weekend against England. He's, he's, he's not there. From Tuesday, he's not there, right? So it's a shortened week. So we get to Wednesday... Okay, we've got a training session. Chunk's there, but he's not looking his normal self. He's not been to bed. He don't know where he's been. He's been doing extra rehab, I think, in the gym. We get to the Thursday. The game's on the Friday night. It could have been on the Saturday night, whatever. The, however the day's worked out. Go down to team run. Go, go down to the team run. He's not there. So Chunk's not there. They're like, Jim, where's Chunk? I'm like... I've got no idea. So we're, get, we're doing the team run for the test match of the weekend against England. It's a must-win game. They're like, can you go back to your room to go and see where he is? And I'm thinking, like, they're almost looking to me like it's my fault. Go back to the room. Chunk is lying, spread eagle on the front of the bed, fast asleep, snoring. So I'm there, like, banging him on the bed. Chunk! Chunk! He's not waking up at all. Chunk! Chunk! Nothing. Roll him off the bed, onto the floor, doesn't wake up. Go into the bathroom, get a jug of water, spray it over his face. He's not waking up. I'm like, there's a chance here that we might have lost Chunk. So I go back to the, I go back downstairs and, and get the dock. I said to James Robson, mate, we've got an issue here. I said, something's happened to Chunk. He says, what do you mean? I said, is he breathing? I said, well, yeah. He's, he's, I said, he wasn't there this morning, so he's, he's just got back. He's obviously been to a mate's house or something. <laughs> James is rocking up in the lift. The guys are doing the team room. We're halfway through a team room to play England the next day. James has got the defibrillator on his back. Chunks on the floor still when we get into the room. Start by naked, and James starts doing the sternum. The sternum rub, right? Which is what they do when, obviously to try and wake people up and the paramedics do. So he's got the sternum rub. He's like, Jim, you do the keep doing the sternum rub. We need to get the, um, we might need to get it fired up. We need to make sure that he's breathing. So James is there like listening to his heart and stuff like that, slapping him in the face. Luckily, he just comes round. He comes round. His teeth have fallen into his mouth as well. So he's half, but that's when he's rolled onto his bed. So we could have lost Chunk that day. We've got him downstairs. He can't see at all. He's absolutely blind drunk, right? We get him down there and they're doing runners off nine. Chunk gets straight into it. And I remember the balls, they couldn't find out who's going to play nine. I remember Andy Robinson had an issue picking nine. Was it going to be Cussell or was it going to be Mike Blair? Anyway, that's another story. The ball's coming straight off Chunk's forehead. This thing, he's blind drunk. So obviously everyone's raging with him. Not me, I think he's an absolute legend. We play against England the next day. And I'm, I don't know if you remember the game. He had arguably one of the best performances I've ever seen from a Scotland player that, that day. And I remember at the end of the game, we obviously lost the game against England, played really well. Is um, 
I put my arm around Chunk and I'm tapping him on his shirt. He's bright red. His shirt is ringing, <laughs> ringing with sweat. He's like, oh, Ken, that, what happened? What happened? I was like, Chunk, we're out. We're out, mate. He says, I know we're out. I know we're out tonight, but what happened in the game? I was like, no. I was like, no, mate. We're out. We're out of the World Cup. That's it. We're done. We're out. Like, I can that. I can that. So as we know, Chunk was out. I've got back. Okay, so the way it goes, you get knocked out of the World Cup. They, they stagger the flight. So some players are out the next day, then the next day, then the next day. Three flights back. I get on the next flight home. A week later, Chunk's ex-wife now, wasn't ex-wife back then, rings my wife, Becky. He's like, is Jim home? Becky's like, yeah, he's been home for a week. She's like, where the fuck's Alan? <laughs> yes. Who's uh... <laughs> story. He was, I know. He, was, he was coaching or something out there. He was giving back to the game. Yeah, I love it. Right, Jim, I could keep you forever, but you've got places to be. Uh, we've not even touched on half of what we could in all your other businesses and fingers and pies. But I'm asking everybody at the end of this just to finish off this sentence. So with all that said, Jim Hamilton, happiness is? Podcasting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. An easy one. <laughs> Jim, thank you very much. It's an absolute honour. All the best when you go exclusive on Spotify and with your coffee and with your podding and media. And I'm pretty sure you're going to take over the rugby world. Thank you, bro. Thanks for having me, mate. Loved it. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Uh, I am hugely honoured that the king of pods has been on here and very genuine, very humble, has a pop at himself, but it just makes us love him even more. The one, the only, Mr. Jim Hamilton. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, go to Apple, Spotify or Acast. Um, subscribe, please. Leave us a review if you've got anything nice to say. And I am very much looking forward to coming back with another guest, although I'm not sure how you top Jim Hamilton. My name is Bruce Aitchison from the Happinesses podcast, and my happiness is egg-shaped. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And, and our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. No, 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 Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 